You're listening to a podcast from 702. 702. The Naked Scientist. It is time for The Naked Scientist. Give us a call, 011 Your SMSs, 31702. Your tweets at Radio 702 using the hashtag 702 Afternoons and the WhatsApp line 072-702-1702. Dr. Chris Smith, happy Monday. How are you? Happy Halloween and uh, welcome to the hottest, highest octane program on the radio station. It's so funny that you, you you started saying Happy Halloween because it isn't really a South African thing, though. Some no, people some people have um, caught on, and I I did think about dressing my son up and taking pictures, but then yesterday happened, and I was too tired, and I was like, nah. And then there's people who say it's boloi, which is it's witchcraft or Satanism. Yeah, well, it, well, it sort of is in some respects. But I, I know this is not a thing in South Africa because I actually have, um, living with us at the moment, a lady from Durban who mm. she actually studies at UCT, Risa Bagwandin. She won from a science communication training workshop I ran in Durban at a conference three years ago a scholarship with the Naked Scientist to come and work with us and learn how to do really good high-level science communication. Yes. And it's taken three years because of COVID, but finally she is here. Oh, and wow. so when we were all kind of thinking about Halloween over the weekend and my daughter got dressed up in some wacky thing to go to a party, um, she appeared dressed up in this way and, and Risa had five fits and said what on earth are you doing <laughs> said, oh, it's Halloween she goes oh okay my wife said to her, is this not a thing in South Africa she says no it's, it's definitely not a thing in South really Africa it's really not <laughs> it really is not look I, I do think it's fun but I don't think the part where you go knock on strangers doors and leave your children to wander around alone asking for sweets is necessarily a good idea in South Africa, but the part of the no, dressing, true. the part about the dressing up, there was, <laughs> I think, is fun. There was there was a very funny cartoon on the front page of one of our national newspapers, the Daily Telegraph, the other day, and what they showed is someone dressed up in a kind of ghost costume, knocking on a door of a business, and it said it's the Chancellor of the UK Exchequer, and he's saying trick or treat, uh, and and I think it was an oil company whose door he was knocking on, because of course they're all revisiting this question. You were just talking about diesel and so on yes. uh, because of the energy crisis the oil companies and the gas companies they're making record levels of profit their highest ever in recorded history and so people are saying well hang on a minute while we've got people going broke is it reasonable that these companies are trousering billions literally billions every few months and so that's why that cartoon sort of preyed on the halloween theme but uh-huh. made a very personal point I see. I, I'll wish everybody a happy Halloween before we end the show. Let's go to the lines. Sia in Soweto, hi. Hi, Lou, how are you? Good, thanks, and you? Um, good, thank you very much. I have a, a question for, for, for the Naked Scientist. Eh? Mm. Yes, I just wanted to find out uh, from the Naked Scientist that why is it that um, sometimes in uh, the, the physicists, they actually refer to the speed of light as just one and they say it's the speed limit uh, nothing can uh, exceed the speed of one so i just wanted to find out mm. why do they refer to it as one nice question sia thank you very much yeah hi sir what they're referring to is that we use the letter c to mean the speed of light so therefore one c means the speed of light and therefore given that you can't break that cosmological speed limit you cannot go faster than the speed of light at least if you're moving something then you are therefore always talking in terms of a fraction of c 
it's a bit like on your car, you redline at a certain number of revs and you could say that's 100%. So anything up to there is where you are, but you can't rev higher than that level. Light cannot travel faster than that and nor can anything else. And therefore it's always expressed as a fraction where one is 100% or one C. Thank you so much, Sia, for that question. Let's go to Trevor in Mauro's Arch. Hi. Good afternoon. Uh, I have a problem with the dirty water, which I refuse to consume and is giving me a stomachache. So I've been uh, drinking a bottle of water from the supermarket. When I boil it, I notice that the kettle makes a crackling sound, and the element in the kettle, which previously was a bright chrome color, has gone very cloudy. I'm just wondering why this is, and uh, am I safe consuming it? Mm. Hi, Trevor. Well, the, the deposits you're seeing on your kettle element are limescale. And this comes from what we call temporary hardness in the liquid. When carbonic acid from acid rain falls on limestone and it dissolves and soaks through the rock, it takes away some of the calcium in the form of calcium hydrogen carbonate or calcium bicarbonate which is soluble. And that's because you've reacted carbonic acid with calcium carbonate and you've made calcium hydrogen carbonate. So the water that you're drinking from your mineral water source obviously contains a lot of calcium hydrogen carbonate. And when you boil it, this is much less stable. And so it breaks down and it releases water and from the molecule and deposits the calcium carbonate again on the kettle element. And this is why temporary hardness is a problem, because when you boil things in your water heater or your kettle, you get the build-up of the limestone that dissolved out of the mountain back in your kettle, and it reduces the efficiency of your water heater or your kettle, because there's now a layer between the kettle element, which is hot, and the water that you want to make hot. So it's almost insulating the element, and it can make it burn out eventually, but it has to get very thick to do that. But it's certainly not harmful to you, and by boiling the water, you're doing the absolute best that you can do to remove microbiological causes of things that could poison you. Of course, it's only as good as where the water's come from in terms of other things that might be dissolved in it. But if it's from an approved mineral water source who do regular checks to make sure their water's safe from all other respects, such as metals and so on, it should be absolutely fine. You just have to go and buy some descalant to make sure that you keep your kettle element nice and clean. Thank you so much, uh, Trevor, for that. Poloson Centurion, hi. Hi, everybody. Uh, hi, uh Dr. Chris, I just want to find out, is it possible to see stuff from the space? Is it a Polo, so just um, um, start again because from is it possible your network went a bit wonky. Okay, so can you hear me now? Yes, we can. So I'm just wondering whether it's possible to see something from space using a normal lens camera. Uh, I mean, normal camera lens. Yes. Particularly from the moon. Mm, mm. All right. Thank you so much, Poloso, for that question. Doctor? Hi, Poloso. The way to think about this is to ask, well, how much detail can I see of the surface of the moon with a normal camera or a pair of binoculars, for example, and then flip it round and say, well, if I was standing on the moon, what would the Earth look like? And the answer is you get the equivalently similar view slightly blurrier because of the atmosphere than it could otherwise be but you're basically able to get reasonably sharp but not very detailed images of things that are that far away 
From the International Space Station, which is going around about 400 kilometres above the Earth, the views are spectacular and they can make out enormous amounts of detail as to what's going on on the Earth's surface below. So it really comes down to how far you are away, because of course light is spreading out all the time the farther away you go, and because the light's spreading out, the image is becoming blurrier. So the further back you go, the more blurred it is, and the more powerful a lens you see to refocus that light and bring it back to a point so you can become sharply focused again. All right, thank you so much for that question. We're going to take a break, and then when we come back, we continue with The Naked Scientist. 702. The Naked Scientist. 10 minutes to 3 o'clock. The Naked Scientist is still with us. 011-8830702 or the WhatsApp line 0727021702. Let's go to the lines. Casey in Johannesburg, hi. Hi. Uh, I had a question in relation to the speed of light query earlier. Um, I just wanted to find out if you're on a spacecraft traveling at the speed of light and you walk forward, do you not break that uh, theoretical max speed limit? And then the second question I had was, uh, does time move at the same speed if you're traveling at, let's say, close to the speed of light? Does time move at the same speed as if you were stationary? Mm. It's all relative, and this is the tricky thing. So a good way of thinking about this is, first of all, to think about the earthbound example. Say I was walking towards you down the road and I stop, I pull out my pea shooter and I shoot a pea at you and it goes peeing off your forehead and you go, ouch. The pea will hit you at the speed it leaves the pea shooter. Now, if I walk towards you at, say, 10 miles an hour, so fast trot, and I do it again, the pea will now hit you at 10 miles an hour faster than it did before. So you might think, okay, I go into space and I shine a light from my spacecraft. How fast does the light go away from me? Light speed. Now I'm going to make the spacecraft go along at whatever speed. How fast does the light measure now? It doesn't measure the light speed plus whatever the spacecraft is doing. It measures light speed. So relative to you, you will always measure the speed of light. Relative to the person who's making the measurement externally from the ground, they'll measure the speed of light. So you can see that there's now a paradox there. You can't have everything. You can't be moving and going faster, but light staying the same. So what happens? Well, time has to change to make the things balance out, which is why as you go faster and faster and faster, although for you, time continues to tick at the same rate, the time for somebody else relative to you will change to balance things up and accommodate. And that's why in the film Interstellar, when they went near that very dense, deep black hole, which was hugely gravitationally active, and gravity has the effect of warping time, they didn't age anything other than the time they would expect to age, but everyone left behind on Earth had got much, much older as a consequence of that. So your question was, if, uh, if you are walking forward in a spacecraft and it's already travelling at the speed of light, well, relative to you, you're just walking around. So for you, you haven't changed anything. For someone watching you walking along, time would change and time would pass at a different rate to make sure that the speed of light they measured was always the same. Thank you so, so much for that question. Um, I feel like this is a very similar one. So let's quickly go to the voice note. Hi, Rele Bukhile and Chris. Um, this is a weird one. My son, who's nine, comes up with the strangest questions. And he asked me the other day, he says, Mom, why do my own farts smell nice to me, but
but somebody else's fart doesn't smell nice to me at all. This is Sam from Benoni. Sam, the reason I'm laughing is because my own farts don't smell nice to me. No one's farts smell nice <laughs> to me. Like, even... <laughs> I think this this question is one for the books. Doctor, I don't know if your farts <laughs> smell nice to you, but wow. <laughs> the reason I'm laughing is because you said, I think this is on a similar note, and it was about farts. And the previous <laughs> question was about relativity and the speed of light, and I'm not really sure how you made that connection. But um, th- there are a number of thoughts about this. One is that when you fart yourself, the threat to you is minimal because it's your own body that made that smell and we are programmed to avoid contagion we have evolved to avoid yucky stuff because that might infect us with things and make us unwell and so we have a natural inborn innate aversion that develops once we get beyond about the age of three to avoid anything stinky and anything that comes from our own body it's stinky and we avoid it but we don't avoid it as much as stuff from someone else which could pose an even bigger threat to us that's one theory just the natural aversion theory of anything that could pass on contagion the other point that was made to me and i'm not sure whether this has any scientific basis but it's a good story so i'll tell it this person suggested that since the chemicals in farts that are coming from your own body are to a certain extent passing round your bloodstream they're therefore passing through your olfactory apparatus in your nose to a limited degree they could therefore be having the effect of suppressing the sensitivity to those chemicals in your own nose so that when they do come out they don't smell as bad to you as to other people i think that's probably a bit tenuous And I'm more in favour of the idea that in the same way that you can't tickle yourself because you're expecting it and therefore it doesn't seem as intimidating or scary, someone else's fart, you don't know when that's coming or where it's coming from or what it's going to do to you. So that sort of airborne toxic event is uh, unpredictable and on that basis you find it far more unpleasant, a bit like being tickled. I think like I I would relate it to changing my own child's diapers is tolerable but if i had to just change a random child's diapers i don't know if that makes sense it does and i think i agree with you um i found it pretty unpleasant changing my own kids nappies, <laughs> but uh, if i was a nursery nurse having to do that for everybody else's kids all day i'd probably look for another job <laughs> all right let's play another wait i want to make sure i'm playing the right voice note yes uh, good afternoon, everyone. Good afternoon, Dr. Chris. Uh, I would like to inquire about um, sex. Now, I understand this term sex is used only for human beings, but do animals also enjoy sex? Like wild animals, like animals, do they also enjoy sex or they only use it for, 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 for reproduction? And when it comes to human, is there anything or can we say sex is nice or it's all in the brains uh, sex was only made for reproductive purposes i don't know if you understand my question thank you so much so if i understand the second part of his question is that he's asking was sex created um also for pleasure or just for reproduction and then do animals enjoy sex simple way to think about this is to say do animals have the same structures in their brains that we know are activated when humans have sex and are clearly enjoying it the answer is yes 
animals have brains very similar to our own and their brains are involved in working a very similar way. So it's reasonable to presuppose that animals like having sex and normally the way nature has evolved animals is to make certain things enjoyable so you do them more often. For instance, when you're thirsty and you have a drink and you're really thirsty, that feeling of, oh, that feels so good to have that drink, it reinforces the goal-oriented behaviour, go and get a drink. When you're really hungry and you eat that food and it just tastes delicious and you think, oh, I'm so hungry now, I feel so much better. Oh, that's so nice. And it reinforces that goal-oriented behaviour. Reproduction is fundamental to the fact that we have to keep our species alive and therefore you make something nice, people are more likely to do it more often. But one of the other flip sides of this is that humans are also a very social species. It has a very powerful bonding effect, particularly in animals that are um, monogamous. And as a result of that, it causes changes in the physiology and the brain chemistry of each individual when they have sex. And we think this brings people closer together, cements a partnership and therefore ultimately turns them into more powerful parents because they're more likely to stay together and nurture a successful family unit which um, we know is associated with more success in the long run. So I think there's probably uh, an answer yes to both of those questions. I heard it was dolphins that enjoy sex. Well, I think that's true too, but then dolphins are mammals, they're very clever animals, they're similar to us, they have a brain very similar to us, so it wouldn't be at all surprising. But it's hard to argue that animals wouldn't seek out this behaviour if they didn't see some kind of reward from having that sex. Mm. I mean, it's probably more complicated animals rather than, say, a housefly. I wouldn't say if you, if you were a fly that you're having sex because you really enjoy it. You're having sex because they, your hormones dictate it in the same as they dictate track down you and, and bite you if you're a mosquito. But I think higher animals like dogs, dolphins, cats and so on, I think they definitely have sex because they enjoy it. Dr. Chris Smith, I think we need a naked scientist um, sex edition specifically for animals because I have so many questions around why some queens or whatever will kill the male she's had sex with or why their testicles explode. So that edition will be coming up soon. We're going to set that up. Thank you, Dr. Chris Smith. All right then. Take care. Bye-bye.